Welcome to Movie Heaven, Movie Hell with me, Simon Aiken, and... And I'm Keith Isles, and we are both independent filmmakers that like to talk about other directors' work. So, if you've been following us, uh, we've finally reached the letter H, and you probably guessed who it is, but Keith... Who is our director for number uh, for H? Oh, I wonder who that could be. I mean, is it somebody that you, we mentioned pretty much in every podcast we've ever done so far, perhaps? Nah, I can't be that person. I don't know. but <laughs> I don't think we've mentioned him enough. <laughs> <laughs> it is, of course, the one and only Alfred Hitchcock, which, uh, you know, um, doesn't really need much introduction. Obviously... There are shed loads of books, uh, material, documentaries, et cetera, et cetera, about this man and his, his career out there. So um, I, I think maybe it's, uh, it, it's worth making this more sort of personal about what Alfred Hitchcock means to us rather than what, it, what he meant to the world of cinema, perhaps. <laughs> well, let me start then by saying that uh, for a short period of time, I lived in Leytonstone which is where Alfred Yay. Hitchcock was born. Absolutely. And uh, Leighton Stone, I'm very Essex, proud. Mate. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, well, I know it says it's Essex, but it didn't feel like Essex. It might be just <laughs> on the boundary. But uh, it was more Walthamstow. Walthamstow, mate. Walthamstow. <laughs> um, but they're, they're very fond of this. Um, they're bought, you know, of, of the director there. And uh, if you go to uh, the tube station there, they have murals on the wall of all these films. Fantastic. Uh, there's a um, subway that walks you walk towards the station, and they're all there. So if you're ever in Leighton Stone, check them out. And also check out the uh, the park there where he um, he was got the idea of doing the birds, seeing all the birds fighting over there. So. Fantastic. Absolutely. Um, well, I mean, you, you know, uh, this, this is almost, we, we could almost, and I think there are out there, have entire podcasts that run for, you know, years that are, that are dedicated purely to Hitchcock. I mean, there is yeah. literally that much material. Um, I think for me personally, uh, you know, I never hold back in the fact that everybody knows I'm a big, big fan of, of Hitchcock. Um, my early exposure actually to Alfred Hitchcock was uh again as we always do with these memory lane things growing up um was was bizarrely um the television series remake in the 80s they they redid um Alfred Hitchcock presents um, oh okay they they were like contemporary uh stories based on some of the old stories but what they did is they put colorized versions of Alfred Hitchcock's introductions to those shows, those very quirky, you know, dark humour. I do remember seeing them. Yeah. Yeah. I saw what so I, that's that's how I sort of first came to know who he was in terms of, you know, because because the thing about Alfred Hitchcock is it's weird. You know, you know, um I guess the only sort of people that that perhaps sort of come close on this are I, I guess Quentin Tarantino and, and and possibly Spielberg, but I mean he was kind of your first celebrity director, 
wasn't he in many in many respects you know to that... such an extent that he could do cameos in his films exactly like giving giving birth to the director's cameo because because everybody knew who hitchcock looked like so there was that little easter egg where you could spot him you know in a shot you know usually carrying an instrument i was having <laughs> a look earlier at the um a list of alfred hitchcock's cameos in the films and yeah. um but two of our choices is definitely carrying an instrument. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, the same one, I believe, the same instrument. Yes. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, he was a celebrity. He did, I think, quite enjoy, you know, the, the, being on camera and doing interviews and being a little bit sort of cheeky and naughty and pushing the boundaries uh, a little bit for the time. Um, it, it's that kind of weird thing. I always, I always have this sort of little saying that I believe in about the the whole film industry and the creative process. In so much that I always say, um, producers are frustrated writers, writers are frustrated directors, directors are frustrated actors, and actors are frustrated people. Um, which means that <laughs> I'm just, you know, seriously frustrated uh, <laughs> in, in many respects. But I, but I yes. do feel that in some respects, Hitchcock may have, in some some ways, been been almost like a sort of frustrated actor, um, and certainly quite a frustrated person. I think. But as I said, there are whole essays on that, so I won't I won't yeah. go too much into that. <laughs> From my point of view, I don't think he was uh, a frustrated actor because I think he just enjoyed the limelight. He just in it just enjoyed being a showman because I mean there's the whole thing with um, introduce um, with Psycho introducing the fact that you had to see the film from the beginning and mm. um, the advertising for that was a, you know a, a standee of Alfred Hitchcock. So yeah, a massive campaign. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah. he was a bit he was a big star by that point, and mm. you know people would go and see. Hitchcock films rather than necessarily a, a Cary Grant film, although sometimes it was both, obviously. But um, <laughs> but I mean, you, you know, what's what's fascinating about this man is because he essentially grew up himself from the birth of cinema. You know, you, he, he did everything from silent films to talkies. He worked in black and white. He worked in color. He worked for every studio, every major studio, as well as independents. He worked both in the UK and the US. And as we already mentioned, he, he, you know, branched out into television as well in the 50s when, when you know, that was the latest thing. And, um, you, you know, very much, I feel, as well, an experimental director. Yes, indeed, he, he borrowed from European cinema in terms of many of his techniques. He didn't necessarily create, but he did definitely introduced them to the mainstream and in a very you know, interesting way because, you know, he was always, you know, as, as well as being the king of the cameo and the master of the MacGuffin and all those sort of things, he always, he always, whether it was from a novel or a play or whatever, he always, you know, worked in the thriller realm and, and dealt, dealt with, you know, murder and espionage and twisted characters with psychological problems and all that sort of thing. And, and, you know, those type of films actually have always interested me anyway. Um, yeah. Well, his films um, have been mostly about the wronged man, as in the, the person who uh, the authorities believe is the culprit and, of course, has to uh, find a way to get out of that predicament. Um, it all stems from uh, when he was a kid and um, 
his parents, um, I think it was his mother, wasn't it, that um, told the police officer to uh, put him in a cell and lock him away. As he um, loves to tell, yes. Yes. In some of his old interviews with yes. Truffaut and whatever. But yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, no, absolutely. They they always sort of stemmed around, you, you know, um, the ordinary person in extraordinary circumstances and obviously, a, 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 you know, scared of authority often. And, and sometimes, actually, I know, especially with some of the ones I've looked at for this, is, you know, he liked to sort of poke fun a little bit at the the upper classes as well yes yes he does yes he did yeah uh, i think that's obviously he came from a working class background originally so um so yeah you know that that that's all quite interesting and of course there's been inspiration for, for for lots of you know directors some of which we've already talked about definitely the likes of, yeah. of de palma you know spielberg's a big fan m night Shalyman, and you, you know he's definitely influenced um you know cinema along the way so I, yeah. I don't think Hitchcock would be too happy about that last influence. Though. Oh, like, oh, I should have not, you know, <laughs> influence M. Night Shyamalan. Well, that's, 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 that's another one, isn't it? That's another podcast. <laughs> no, I think we'll, we'll give him a, a miss because... Yeah. There's so many too, S's. There's so yeah, many S's. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, there's too many movie hells there as well. <laughs> 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 Won't Indeed. be any surprises there. What's your choice for movie heaven? Right. Oh, Sixth Sense, Unbreakable. What's your choice <laughs> for movie hell? Mmm, so many. That's true. That's okay. True. But, uh, but uh, let's get back to Hitchcock. So, uh, Keith, uh, what is your pick for movie heaven? Right. Well, I mean, um, as I always have to, you know, sort of preamble before my choice. <laughs> I mean, it, it is a tough one because I love loads of his movies. Um it, it, it's funny, actually, I, you know, again, growing up, apart from the uh, television series, obviously, of course, like everyone else, I grew up with the with the big American Hollywood films that he had hits with in the in the 50s and 60s, you know, the really well known ones, uh, you know, the North by Northwest's and Rear Window and Birds and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, those greats. Um, so, I, I, you know, I wanted to. Think of something that, uh, that, that that perhaps I, you, you know, wasn't wasn't glaringly obvious, and obviously would give me an excuse as well to talk about some other aspects of cinema and the film industry um, with it. So it's slightly loaded. Um, the the one I've gone for in this particular instance is um, Dial M for Murder. Okay, which uh, he made in 1954. Okay, um, the Part of the reason I, I've chosen this one, apart from the fact it is a great film, uh, I mean, it was the first his first collaboration with Grace Kelly, who's obviously a gorgeous, um, uh, you know, leading lady there. Um, he obviously worked with her again on on Rear Window and To Catch a Thief, um, two other excellent films. That's but nice. um, yeah, the, the reason I kind of chose this one was because I, I said about how he sort of experimented with different things. Um, you know, he'd obviously you know, worked, uh, you know, in the single shot uh, idea in Rope and, um, you know, done various things. But few people know um, that, you know, he actually did experiment as well in 3D cinema. And um, a lot of my, you know, a year or so ago when I was back teaching, uh, a lot of my students, they thought 3D cinema had started in 2009 with Avatar. 
you know and I was sort of yeah. explaining no we it's been, kind of been happening since the beginning of cinema almost and uh you, you, you know there was that time um you, you know in in the in the late 40s early 50s you had some of the uh, Universal monster movies that were 3D. You had, um, you know, it came from outer space, and you had House of Wax, and you had all these different, um, you know, experiments out there uh, with with using 3D. And of course, right in the mix of this um, was Dial M for Murder, uh, which, as I said, was actually made in 53, but released in 54. And obviously, by the time it had been released. The whole fad, the whole um, gimmick, if you like, of 3D had kind of, you know, disappeared because, you know, people were fed up with wearing these these funny looking glasses and they had to have, you know, in big intermissions in the middle of it because they had to obviously run two projectors at the same time. And, you know, various reasons it hadn't caught on. So the film was actually released flat. Um, it was released in 2D. Um and actually, I have to say, works incredibly well in 2D. I mean, it's a, you know, it's not one of these films that's 3D for 3D's sake. Um, and for many years, the, the only 3D bit you could see, um, and, and these bring back very fond memories of what is when you used to go to Universal Studios, they used to have, they don't have it anymore, sadly, but they used to have an Alfred Hitchcock show. And um, what they would do is they would show the, the, the the classic scene of, of of Grace Kelly um you know being attacked in yeah. 3D and yeah. then it and then the screen would break and they'd they'd show a bit from the birds and stuff and then you'd end up going through to a little reenactment of Psycho and it was great. It was an absolutely <laughs> brilliant um thing that sadly's not there anymore like I said. Yeah. But um a, a couple of years back um the BFI did a Alfred Hitchcock season and unfortunately at the time I was I was a freelancer and you know working in a call center and whatever so it was a little bit skint so couldn't really afford to go and see everything I did right. get I did yeah. get to see some of his silent films I saw a film called The Lodger which was the second film he made which uh, was very interesting um but I did try and catch up on it, as well as wanting to see some of my favourites on the big screen. I did also want to try and catch some of the uh, some of his films that I hadn't seen. But during that season, they actually did do a proper three um, D presentation of this with a full on intermission and everything. And um, you, you, you know, it was actually uh, very very effective. I thought, even by today's standards. Can I ask, was that like uh, post converted three D or just using the three D of the time? It was using the three D of the time. It was actually they ran it on two projectors, two film projectors, and the glasses that we had, rather than like the sort of polarized three D glasses that you get nowadays when you go to the uh, multiplex or whatever. This was back to the old traditional red and blue lens type glasses so it was real old school it was just as it was um but uh you know it worked it worked incredibly well for this film and essentially this film i mean it's it's actually it's it's from a stage play which you can kind of tell i want to ask about that because um because this is the first time i watched dial in for murder and i really enjoyed it okay Yeah. yeah i really enjoyed it but I'm just wondering, it was very stagey. Yes. It was very much uh, shot uh, all studio. 
everything was either like uh, back projection, even like just outside, so like the police officer standing outside at the end is just like, you know, back projection. No, absolutely. Uh, but do you think that he made it kind of that stagey because of the 3D? Well, I, I think I mean yes, it, it's, it's from a play. I, we should we should credit, I guess, by Frederick Knott uh, that the, the the play was by, and um, you know often he he either adapted plays or novels. Um, right. It, this one's another one that definitely deals with confined space. I mean, obviously, he did lifeboats uh, quite some time earlier, which all literally took place in a, in a in a lifeboat and he'd also done which was actually his first color film as well he did um rope which obviously yes. again was like watching a piece of theater almost it all took place in the one place real time uh you know with this again this perfect murder in inverted commas um theme that he likes um i, I saw rope uh when i was studying at panico and uh, we actually did a, a project based on it trying to do um like a story in one shot yeah. using just one reel of uh, Super 8. Uh, and watch, um, if you've seen Birdman, Birdman uses similar tricks. Absolutely, Birdman does. Although what, what I thought was great about Birdman, I really did like that film last year, but what I thought was amazing about it was, you know, not only did it, it simulate the, the, the one take, but it also, what I thought was brilliant, was time-jumped as well in well, terms yes. of you know yeah. rather than it all taking no, normally those those one takes whether it's De Palma in Snake Eyes or or um you, you know Hitchcock in Rope and or you know Scorsese in The Goodfellas whatever it, yeah. it's usually uh or Orson Welles in Dial uh, in um uh Touch of Evil all these different yes. ones but it's normally a sort of real-time thing that happens so we're following the camera and it's real time but what I like they did in Birdman was we followed the camera the whole way, but you know they would jump to like a week later, and the play would be on, and yes, yeah. <laughs> and all that stuff. That was brilliant. <laughs> I thought it, I thought it was great, and I mean, if you haven't seen Birdman, I, yeah. both me and Keith highly recommend it. Very highly recommend it. Fabulous film, very imaginative, very entertaining. So yeah, definitely go to it. When was the first time you saw this film? What Dilemma for Murder? Yes. Oh, years ago. I mean, I, I, it was one of those ones, I think, uh, possibly like a Saturday afternoon or, or, or something as a kid. Um, I, I saw it and, you know, probably at the time, if I'm honest, thought it was a bit, um, you know, hot upper class and a little bit boring, maybe as a kid. <laughs> um, you, you know, when, when I when I when I really got into it was I started collecting uh, in, in the sort of early noughties, I started collecting his DVD collections. And uh, oh, okay. obviously this one, because this was one of his Warner films, um, yeah, this came out in the in the Warner DVD box set of his. And, uh, you know, it was great because it had some, some extras on it and things of that nature. But um, so I, I'd watched it sort of flat in 2D several times. But then obviously when you know, a couple of years back when that 3D release came out, I thought, yes, I've got to go and see this again in, in 3D and and was, you know, thoroughly glad that I did. So oh, um, uh, which version do you prefer? Um, I, to be honest, the 3D stuff, I mean, he doesn't use it as a gimmick. Like there aren't things sort of flying out the screen at you. He, he well, kind of there is it. there is one shot where the death shot. Yeah. <laughs> well, not no, not the death shot, but when Grace Kelly is reaching out towards the scissors. 
Yeah. And it's towards the camera. Yeah. So no, I imagine absolutely. in 3D she's reaching out for you. Yeah, no, she which is. is it, which is a gimmick that's been used in 3D films for forever. Now. Absolutely. But what I liked is um, in terms of the set, and you were absolutely right where you said it, you know, it's all pretty much set bound. What I thought he was very clever with was was the placement of everything. So in other words, you, you know, you would look through furniture to the action mm. and yeah. there was a lot of drinks action going on because of course all upper class people drink heavily <laughs> right and uh, so, so he had yeah. these things where he set the drinks bottles and the the, the the flower pots and things in the foreground and yeah i mean it was all really effective but the, the point is and i think this is the point of 3d in general which is why i've kind of chosen this film in some respects to talk a little about this is is um if the story works, if the characters are good and the story's engaging and it's interesting, I don't think it really matters. You know, I mean, this work, this film works perfectly well as a um, 2D film. You know, Hitchcock's use of the camera in it, as always, is fantastic. His use of colour in this is brilliant because, of course, you, you know, as he likes to do with his, with his ladies, you know... Um, Grace Kelly's a bit of a naughty woman in this. She's an adulterer, yeah? Which is set up very, very well in the opening sequence. I mean, it's only a few shots and just you you know straight away that she's, you know, she's married to this guy, but she's also seeing this other guy on the sly. Exactly. And what's very clever about this is when they show her with Ray Milland, who's, who plays her husband in the film, you know, she's wearing like a white dress and whatever and cut to, you're right, just moments later, she's kissing this other guy suddenly and there she is in red and it's yeah. just like, I, I love this, you know, what he's <laughs> doing here. And, and, you know, it's all absolutely intentional. It's like I always used to say to, to the kids, you know, everything that you see and hear is there for a reason, no matter how brief it might be or how in the distance it might be. It's all supposed to be serving character and story, which this absolutely does, you know, in a, in a wonderful way. Um, yeah. It's not distracting. Um, yeah. Well, I think it, it, it was not distracting, but if you know the rules about that kind of stuff, then it's, it's very quite plain to see. Mm. If you know what I mean. So, you know, it's, it's those whole rules that, you know, white is the, um, you know, uh, Virginia and, you know, honest and good. And yet red, red is sort of, you know, um, she's a temptress and, you know, she's doing no good and all that kind of stuff. Mm. I mean, you know, again, different. For it, You see that crop up in his work a lot where. Even know, in black certain, and white. Yeah. Even in black and white where it's, you know, <laughs> but you we'll can tell when that, somebody's right? up to no good because by the colour of their clothes. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you, you know, it's, it's got all of his, his traits in there. I mean, the story itself, um, it, you know, it's a rather convoluted, although quite clever, um, plot. Um, mm. As I said, it's got, it's got Ray Milland in it. Now, Ray Milland, I always, again, from my childhood, remembered from um, Battlestar Galactica as, as the... Uh, leader of the council, Sire Yuri, who, who Adama oh, right. butted heads yeah, yeah. with. And obviously yeah. he, was an, he was an old man at that point, but here yeah. he is, Bloody very, hell, very yes. young and, and handsome uh, in right. this he's, film. He's the one who uh, 
in Battlestar Galactica says, no, no, they want peace and stuff. And then, of course, he gets blown up. <laughs> oh, actually, no, no, no. No, the president, no? That, that's Lou Ayres, who's at the beginning, who's President Adar, who gets blown up. Um, Ray Milland is later in it when they they elect a new council and oh, um, he plays okay. the one that Adama really clashes with and Apollo clashes with. And then, of course, after the pilot movie, mysteriously disappears for Appears, the rest of yeah. the series. But um, but anyway, I've got off topic. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, with, with 3D, my, my feeling on 3D, whether it's classic or modern, is what I tend to do nowadays. If the movie is specifically shot for 3D, um, I'll, I'll go watch it in 3D. However, if it's one of these post-conversion things, just because the studio, you know, want to release and, and sell more tickets, I tend not to bother. And I and I use I use similar rules with IMAX as well. Is is most of the time if the film's actually shot in IMAX or shot for IMAX, I'll go see it in IMAX. But if it's if it's a regular one, then I don't like the compromise of the aspect ratio and things of that nature. And interestingly, yeah. this is slightly off topic, but Jurassic World, which I really enjoyed, by the way. Um, yeah. But uh, obviously not as good as the first one, but hey. Um, but uh, that, they actually, for the first time, used a new aspect ratio, which is 2.00 to 1. And the reason they did that was obviously to give the height for the dinosaurs etc like the, yeah. the originals were always in 185 but also to give it a little bit of cinematic flair but also to make the conversion across to IMAX ratio um fit better so oh, okay there you go a little bit of little bit of trivia there but I'm, <laughs> I, I love it when they sort of come up with these things you know yeah. um well I just want to say that you know my rules for watching 3D films and uh is I go and see the 2D version all the time because um, <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the day, it works perfectly well in 2D. I just, it just doesn't add anything to the film, apart from maybe give you a headache afterwards. Well, yeah, I mean, it, you know, if, if, if the film, to be honest, if the, if the story and the characters are good, then it should work anyway. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes I mean, I've seen a few horror films and obviously some sort of animated kids films and whatever where they do sometimes use it very well and it is and it is yeah um, i have to say know. i enjoyed uh final destination five exactly in 3d and that was that was that was good but i mean that was also an enjoyable experience because it just had fun with that story yeah and it just went somewhere that you weren't expecting uh so yeah it was it was very enjoyable to see it 3d but uh i have to say i saw that fright fest and uh, a lot of people were moaning about it because it was the second film of the festival. And they're like, why is this here? Yeah. And then once we all saw it, we were like, oh, this was great. So yeah. much fun. I, I mean, it is a bit of a gimmick. And I, I mean, now I, I've not experienced this yet, but they've even got now at some of the multiplexes, they've got this thing called 4DX, mm -hmm. which, you know, obviously the seats move and it fires air and water and all sorts of things. <laughs> but again, yes. it's... It's just an excuse to make the ticket double the price. And let's be honest, if the film's worth anything, it should work without all of that anyway. Yeah, so, it doesn't need all those gimmicks. Yeah. yeah, It's like 3D in the home. Never really, you know, I know people have it, but I don't really care, to be honest. People I know who have 3D in the home, they quite enjoy it 
more than they do at the cinema. But uh, I, again, I'm not not convinced. I think until they get to a point where you can watch a 3D film without glasses, you know, I think possibly then. But then that's just going to be like a whole getting used to something new. Yeah. Because if that happens, everything will be in 3D. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the the other thing, again, you know, I, I, I don't want to just sort of go through the, the, the plot. I encourage mm. people if they haven't, if they're listening to this and haven't seen it to absolutely, absolutely see this film because it is very entertaining. But one of somebody who really deserves a mention in this is um, John Williams. And, and that's not the genius composer, John Williams, <laughs> who I love, but it's actually an actor that was in this film who plays... Hubbard, who is the um, police investigator uh, behind the the shenanigans that that go on with this with this murder, um, you know, apparently he actually worked with Hitchcock more than than um, you know Cary Grant or Jimmy Stewart or any of those guys. Apparently, he was in more Hitchcock films th- th- than anyone, um, you know, in terms of males. Um, yeah, but. Uh, you, you, you know, he, he was very entertaining. He was very <laughs> upper class, very British, very pompous. Um, and, you know, apart <laughs> apart from the, 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 the kind of the closing shot at the end where he decides to pull a comb out of his jacket and comb his moustache. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, which is awfully cringeworthy. But other than that, I thought he was very, very entertaining in, in this he, film. He was. I mean, he's, his character was the one who he... He felt that something was rather fishy with the, um, the you know, the alibi. Well, the thing is, it's alibi after alibi because basically yes. the original plan goes wrong. And then, of yes. course, you know, they... they there's another story created to cover that one and then another story created to try and get, you know, Grace Kelly off at the end from because yeah. obviously this was back in the 50s when the when the death sentence was still uh, y- you know in play yes. in the UK so um, <laughs> so there was a lot riding on it and um you you, you, you know it, it as i said it it's a very enjoyable ride even though it is somewhat claustrophobic it doesn't feel like that or feel boring in any way no, it's um no, it didn't at all it, it it serves the um it serves the, the you know the overall story uh really well um and also i like the fact that it's mostly still told from the point of view of uh the the husband who sets all this up because at the end of the day you do kind of feel uh on his side because she is cheating on him yeah, I mean, yeah, we wouldn't. No, nobody would go out there and try and murder their wife or get somebody to murder their wife. But um, you know, you can still understand it from a human point of view that you know he, you know, he's the wrong party in this. Oh, definitely. I mean, I mean, she's actually quite cruel with it because not only is she cheating with him, but you know, the person she's cheating with is invited into the home and. You, you, you know, entertained and given drinks and, you, you, you know, all of this sort of stuff. So in, in some respects, although obviously what Ray Meland is, is character is trying to do and obviously he's trying to get an inheritance and all this, of course, it's very wrong. But at the same time, yes, you can kind of, this is what Hitchcock's so good at. You know, you can kind of, um, you know, see it see it from his point of view as well. Yeah, definitely. you can sympathise with him. So, yeah. you know, when he is finally caught out at the end, you you do feel a bit of sadness because you, you're like, oh, it might be interesting if he got away with it. 
What makes me laugh though is that you know the, 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 they all decide to have a good old drink, and then it's yeah. the end, which, which did sort of uh, did sort of crack yes. me up. But it's a, it's a very interesting journey, you know, getting to this point. And um, you, you know, the other thing is, of course, it influenced. Um, you, you know, again, I mentioned in other podcasts, um, you know, my sort of fascination. Uh, throughout the '90s, with with thrillers that starred Michael Douglas, and oh yeah, uh, and, and by the way, you know, you know, you said about the we said about Verhoeven and and you, you know not putting Jimmy Stewart in one of his films. To be fair, though, he did mo- model uh, Sharon Stone on Kim Novak in that film, completely oh, from Vertigo. Right. You know, yeah. Um, but uh, but no, I mean, um, yeah. Well, Verhoeven's he's always sort of been very influenced by Hitchcock. Oh, definitely. So. Definitely. Yeah, especially if you watch his Dutch films. Yeah, no, absolutely. But but um, they did do a a remake of sorts called um, uh, a, a Perfect Murder. Um, oh, okay. I yeah, I remember this though. Didn't they change it from uh, he doesn't blackmail his friend; he actually blackmails the lover into tr- killing that, her. That's right. Yeah, it's, yeah, it was directed by Andrew Davis. It also starred uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and Viggo Mortensen and David Suchet. Um, and uh, basically, what part yes. did David Suchet play? Uh, he played the investigator, like the Hubbard character. Yeah, the, oh, the isn't Williams that surprising? Did he have character. like a little like twirly moustache and stuff? And go, <laughs> actually, remember I me? Did. I can't remember, but um, but yeah, there are differences. I mean, they open it out in a big way for a start. Mm. It's not as as con- contained. Uh, so it is different, and they change the character name and they change some of the circumstance. So it's very loosely based on that material but again um i found it at the time and 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 you know when i've watched it more recently uh, another very entertaining thriller so um you know you know i i I like i like those kind of things so um so yeah yeah that's kind of that's kind of why i uh why i chose it as my movie heaven um even though there are many and and of of course we, we have to announce as well um AFI's number one film of all time now is Vertigo. It's actually knocked Citizen Kane off the oh, top right. like two years ago or whatever. So um, I, I think it's uh, AFI's and Sight and Sound's uh, number one movie of all time now. So, yeah. you know, wow. <laughs> yeah, well, as, as you say, the, the, the what we could have picked... For movie heaven, there were so many choices. So many, absolutely. So many choices. So, um, when it when it came to my choice, um, I decided to, on something that kind of you know, um, I, I felt you know affected me, or you know, I sort of discovered without having to be told about it, uh, because you know, with all the Hitchcock films, especially the ones that are considered his classics, you know, there's so many programs documentaries literature and they all sort of talk about these great films but uh, they never leave much room for you to discover them and this one i discovered by myself uh i was watching channel four one afternoon and the film came on and um i was hooked from the very first frame to the end and my pick for movie heaven is strangers on the train yeah fabulous film love it love it also so yes um and the the thing that really got me was uh, outside of the premise was um the how to make a uh uh, a tennis match 
so tense. I mean, you know, I'm not a big tennis fan. I mean, as we're recording this, Wimbledon's on. Ah, yes, it is. Yeah, that's right. And when I was a kid, absolutely hated Wimbledon because it would just take over the uh, the TV listings. So, you know, you could kiss Star Trek goodbye if you were in the middle of the season. You had to wait till <laughs> September because here comes all the sports and the first one always to kick it off was Wimbledon. <laughs> It sounds like sounds like me growing up. Yeah, I was always yeah. moaning about the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so it was actually um, for me. It was great how he was able to use this tennis match to such great effect. Well, interestingly enough, in Dial M for Murder, there is a tennis connection in that as well because well, yes, the character is, yes. the character that Ray Milan plays is an ex tennis pro. You know, that sort of gave up the sport to keep his wife happy. So. Um, Interesting that there's a tennis theme. I was remember when I was watching Dial M, I thought, oh, there's a little nod to his previous film, you know. Yeah. To um, Strangers on the Train. That was that was a nice little touch. It's not sort of in your face, but if yeah. you knew his work, you kind of go, oh, yeah. Yeah, because Strangers on a Train was, was it 51, I think? I think it was uh, 51. Uh, yeah, I think, yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, 1951. So and it was three years before Dial M for Murder. Right, and that was also based on a novel, which was a Patricia Highsmith novel, right? Which yes, they always say right. was kind of a perfect um, perfect marriage of, of, you know, her dark material and uh, Hitchcock's, you know, take on it was, was kind yeah. of the perfect blend, really. <laughs> well, it's, it's just, I mean, I love the, the concept of the story. The idea is that, you're on a train and this stranger comes up to you and they know who you are and they start talking to you as if they know you. And uh, they figured out that you have a little problem that, you know, you could sort of, they could deal with if you could deal with a problem that they have is, you know, it says in his speech, oh, when I was, when I was young, I had this idea of, you know, what would be the perfect crime, you know, swapping murders because there'd be no, um, Oh, what's the word? Um, It'd be nothing to trace you back. Would there? No, no, no uh, motive. Motive. Yeah. Because why would you want to kill this stranger? You don't know them. They've not done anything to you. And, uh, of course, he uses this phrase, crisscross, which, um, you know, is it, very, in one word, sort of really just describes the whole idea of swapping murders. Now, of course... Um, the character of Guy Haynes, the tennis player, he doesn't want anything to do with it. Yet um, Bruno Anthony, the uh, the stranger on the train, um, he goes ahead with the the crime anyway. And it's it's just uh, that whole sequence where he's following the ex-wife through uh, the funfair. It's amazing. It's, it yeah. is amazing. It's, it's a, really well done. Because it's a flirtation, isn't it? I mean, it yes. totally is a flirtation. And, um, of course, um, he has a thing about his hands as well. He's always sort of blowing into his hands and rubbing them before he does something. So when he he does the um, test your strength, you know, with the hammer and the bell, and you see him do the whole thing with his hands before he does it, and, of course, he's the only one who's able to, to strike the bell showing how that he's actually got quite a bit of strength. Well, it's, it's like everything with Hitchcock. You know, he's really good at um, serving both plot and character at the same time, isn't he? So, you know, that's a perfect example there. He's, he's, 
he's driving the story along, but telling us something about that character that's going to be relevant as well. And because uh, he uses those hands later, and uh, such a great shot, um, you know the one I'm talking about where <laughs> he's reflected in her glasses. Absolutely, which again is a, is a, is another piece of the puzzle that comes into play later because um, he has Bruno Antley's character has a reaction when he sees um, the Patricia Hitchcock character. That's right. In it wearing glasses, looking like the ex-wife. No, that's, that's right. I mean, again, um, one of the things he does very well in all of his films is, you know, the use of props, you know, mm. props being relevant to a story, even if they're a MacGuffin. Um, yeah. You know, there, there's always a great detail to that. So in this, of course, you've got the cigarette lighter. You've got mm. the you've got the thick rim glasses. Um, yes. You know, and, and some, just some wonderful uh, imagery, you, you know, along the way that, that, that I mean, that that you mentioned. And I absolutely agree with you. I mean, the tennis match thing, that that whole idea of the heads going backwards and forwards while he is just staring straight out. Is, is well, I, I meant I meant the actual the second tennis match. That was the bit where he's following him, because because um, the police uh, have got a minder, don't they, with mm-hmm. uh, Guy Haynes, and so he follows him everywhere. So he so the Bruno Anthony character is he's sort of stalking him without you know bringing much notice to himself. So you see him like off in the distance in. Um, Washington, don't you? That's Standing right. By that, yeah. Standing by the yeah, and then yeah, the and then you see him in the tennis match as well, and he's the only one who's watching uh, guy the guy Haynes character, and not watching the match because everybody else's heads are going back and forth <laughs> like they do in tennis matches, and he's and he's the only one who's static who's just looking at him. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's just it's just really well done, and uh, Robert Walker who plays. Bruno Anthony, he just has that sort of mixture of of creep and suave, you know, that you you can he's very watchable. Yeah, no, I agree. Definitely yeah. sort of toes that line between um you, you know, le- leading man and anti-hero and um kind of <laughs> you, you know, and again he's slightly off, isn't he, with like yes. he's got the tie pin and That's you, right. you, you know, all of again, all of these details which which is so relevant to the, the the story as well as the character. Well, that's right because uh, Guy Haynes's uh, girlfriend notices that he has the Bruno tie pin on, even though he's pretending to be somebody else. And uh, yeah, sort of just I don't know if it was like he didn't if he forgot to take it off or he just didn't care. It's like you know, just to let you know that I'm not really this person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, it's it's really well done. I think all the actors in it are really good. Um, it just goes at quiet pace, um, you know, and it, it starts straight away, then meeting on the train and then leading off into the meeting with Guy Haynes and his wife. Yeah. Uh, who's, who blackmails her. Well, I like the way he sets up the beginning yeah. with the just stop focusing on the feet, you know, and focusing on them getting out of their respective cabs and you know, mm. getting onto the train and, and, and you know, using that brush of the foot to start the conversation. And again, That's it's right, all yeah. done so effectively. And so, you know, like you were saying about the not wasting any time with the beginning of Dial M for murder, you know, yeah. we know what's going on with the characters and what the relationships are. And very similar in this. I mean, it, it gets us, we know the environment, 
and and it, it just even even the shoes speak something about the characters, you know, which yes. is which is yeah. quite interesting. So um, yeah, absolutely agree with you one hundred percent on this. Though the uh, the the bit at the end when the um, uh, the priest is there's he uh, Guy Haynes and his girlfriend who are probably now married because <laughs> you know he still benefited from this murder he was still <laughs> got out of not being blackmailed and able to marry his sweetheart and probably become a politician as well <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so they're sitting there on the train and this priest on the other side goes oh you guy haynes and they look at each other and get up and that's walk right. away and, and the priest like <laughs> Well, okay. I don't know if that's his comment on, um, <laughs> I don't know, on faith or whatever religion. Yeah, <laughs> he always just, likes to end just, on a bit of a joke, doesn't joke, he? A bit, yeah. of a bit of dark humour at the end of yeah. what's always quite a nasty, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, story in many respects. But yeah, he always kind of ends it on a chuckle. <laughs> I'm just going to say, um, um, while I, I went back and I watched this film again. And um, while I was watching it, I remembered that... Um, throw mama from the train was kind of based on this film all oh, right and i went back and watched it and I, I don't know if you've seen it or not it's you know what it's been, it's one of those films that i think back in the day i probably did see but i is this with danny devito yes and billy crystal yeah yeah it's a long time ago <laughs> well there's there is a good reason why you didn't go back to watch it it's not a very good film oh okay uh, it is kind of a remake um there is also a bit of a homage to um hitchcock as well right um because they they use some of the locations well known from his films in it but it's just and also uh danny devito's character is influenced by the film he actually goes to watch it because billy crystal recommends that he should go and watch hitchcock because he writes a um devito writes a thriller a who done it where there's only two characters in it <laughs> but um yeah it's a it's 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 a very annoying film as well um danny devito throughout most of the film keeps saying crisscross as it's like his mantra and it's just uh it's just it was hard going it's too it on the nose is it a little uh, bit too on just, the nose yeah it wasn't very funny and um the actress who played uh his mum was a really horrible character I mean, even worse than she was in The Goonies. But it's just, uh, just a, a terrible film. So, um, so I, I, you know, as I say, uh, I went back and watched that because I was curious to see how it was related to um, Strangers on the Train. But um, pretty loose, though. <laughs> very loose and not worth rewatching, in okay. my opinion. Okay, I mean, what what one of the, one of the standout things about this this film, which again, I I obviously, in fact, it was part of the um the box set um that that Dial M for Murder was in, so because uh, it's a so Warner Brothers I had film. easy easy access to watch it again, and I did mm. obviously in preparation for this, and yeah. um one one of the things that that, that, that is such a you know a striking scene even if it moves slightly into ridiculous but it's very good is of course the the the, the climax on the uh on the merry-go-round <laughs> oh yeah because um one of the police officers takes a, a shot at uh, guy haynes and misses him and hits uh the guy running the um 
the merry-go-round, doesn't it? Yeah, well, the carousel. A- absolutely. And, and of course, then the carousel starts speeding up. And I was watching this and thinking, oh, man, this reminds me of... Um, you ever see a film called Problem Child 2? Oh, I don't think I saw the second one. I remember the first Oh, okay. One. Well, there's the, the, the idea of the second one is that there's, there's a little girl who's as bad as the, the kid in it. And uh, there's a bit when they're all on the... Uh, like a merry-go-round or something like that. Uh, it's some sort of ride which the little kid can't get onto, so he sneaks in and pulls, pulls the power on. And, of course, everybody's now getting really unwell and throwing up. And that just reminded me of that finale. There was no throwing up in, in this film. <laughs> <laughs> I felt there should have been. I mean, it's, it was like a kid being clutched by, you know, onto her horse and stuff and crying, but, you know, nobody throwing up. It was going around pretty fast. Yeah, there's the kid not liking it, and then there's the kid loving it, which I thought yeah. was very clever. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, what he does, which I loved, I mean, again, you know, Alfred Hitchcock mm. likes to put his little bit of sort of dark humour in, in places, is the guy crawling underneath to... Oh, get, God, yeah. He, he kind of stops and looks at his watch for a second and then carries on, and it's like, you know... He just—he's brilliant at building that. Well, the thing was, I saw—I saw him do that, and I think, Jesus, I, I, he's going to get clipped by something underneath <laughs> there. So he's going to knock him. But he just keeps, and he just crawls really slowly, doesn't he? Yeah, that's great. But yeah, when he stops it, it just goes—it just just gets demolished, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. He know—he knows how to uh, build. You know, he is the master of suspense. Yeah. You know, and he—he he knows yeah. how to. to, how to <laughs> build that up well and um you, you, you know i mean a, a, again you know like we always say anybody out there listening um you know our, our, our one listener up in leeds or whatever <laughs> any anyone that wants to you know um get into filmmaking you know absolutely i mean it's like duh it's probably a no-brainer but you know you need to go in <laughs> yeah you got you have at least work. watch you know at least one hitchcock film um, I have to say that another thing I'm just remembering now that made me really chuckle was uh, when uh, Bruno Anthony pops the uh, kid's balloon with his cigarette. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that's a <laughs> yeah. classic just, moment. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> the kid's like, ah! uh, No, it's, it's great. Yeah. It's, it, the, 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 I mean, there's, there's, there's many classic moments in that. And, and, you, and I think you're absolutely right with what you've said. It is probably in some respects, maybe one of the lesser known of the great films of his, obviously, which there's so many, but um, it's not one that instantly springs to mind. If you sort of say, oh, name, you know, yes. five Hitchcock films, it's always the same ones, you know. It's, yeah. it's always uh, Vertigo, Rear Window, Psycho, uh, North by Northwest, is that five? Yeah, the birds. Yeah. The um, birds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of you know yeah, and th- and there are plenty of others. Something quite very interesting as well. Not only was it from a novel by uh, Patricia Highsmith, but uh, one of the uh, scriptwriters was Raymond Chandler. Right. So there you go. Even more pedigree to the to the film. No, I mean, well, again, you know, he he worked both in front of and behind the camera with with people who were really at the top of their game you know whether, yes. whether it be in the writing process which you know it, it, it's fair to say that um you, you know even though he, he often used novels and, and plays as source material he, he yeah. did always get very heavily involved in the writing process of everything that he did as a director yes. 
Um, and and again, you know, like other collaborators, collaborators like um, you know his his photographers or his uh, his composers, um, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they were always people who were hugely at the top of their game. Um, uh, you, you know, so even even though you know many feel he's got the sort of auteur um, control down to an absolute you, you, you know T. Uh, at the same time, you know, he was always surrounded by by lots of talent as well. Um, well, I think this is a good place to lead on to uh, your pick from uh, Movie Hill because this was uh, this is a good example it is. of him working with uh, a film star. It, absolutely, I mean, um, I, I struggled for Movie Hell because you, you know I like uh, so many of Hitchcock's films. Um, you know, obviously all the obvious ones, but. Uh, uh, I didn't really know where to go with this. So what I, what I actually did was I, I sought some advice um, from uh, a teacher that I know. I'll give a shout out now as a guy called um, John Wishmeyer. Okay. Okay. He is a, um, a film historian and teacher of film studies and courses. Uh, I did a Alfred Hitchcock course with him. Uh, about three years ago, uh, again, in order to really um, broaden my my horizons with 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 Hitchcock's canon of work, which you know, as we oh, said, right. is vast. What um, do they teach in a, a Hitchcock class? Well, then? I mean, they t- it, you know, a lot of it's it's for people of all levels, but you, you know, it's for fans. But I mean, it, it, you know, we we studied we 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 studied all of his different. We look we, well. We 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 talked a lot about him and his his, his past and his childhood and his, his his influences. And we looked at obviously a lot of European films that he he borrowed from uh, or was influenced okay. by. But then we went through all the stages of his career. So you know we we went from the silent into the talkies and then into the black and and, and then of course into the um, uh, moving over to the US and et cetera, et cetera. So we we sort of studied that, but we watched a lot of the older films as well so that's where i got to see quite a few things that i hadn't watched previously um yes. so i and and, and john wishmeyer I, I this year i did a um scorsese course with him similar sort of okay. format and i'd also previously done a nordic noir uh course with him where we looked at that sort of subgenre, which i found quite oh, interesting okay. but anyway yeah. so i reached out to him and i sort of said look you know if i had to talk about a uh, a Hitchcock film that, that doesn't really work. Um, where would I start? Because you, you know that whether you like them or not, they're all, they've all got something. You know, <laughs> um, so he recommended a film to me that I hadn't seen, and I thought, well, this is good because I can I can not only um, you know I can use this to to again watch something I hadn't seen before, and obviously do a bit of research on it as well. So I dug right. back to 1947. Um, with a film called The Paradine Case, okay? Um, it's essentially a courtroom drama. Um, it's essentially not a courtroom drama. I, uh, oh God, this is such a... I, 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 sorry to interrupt you, but this is such a melodrama. Well, it, it, it just is, happened to have a court case in it. Yeah, I mean, it, it is full of a lot of melodrama, and it's also oh. it, it's also um, uh, uh, what's the word I was looking for? It's gone out of my head. But it, it's it's essentially it, well, okay. boring. Essentially, <laughs> it, 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 it's not particularly Hitchcockian. Although, no. although um, I watched it and I did sort of pull out 
things that are definitely Hitchcock uh, within it. Um, but uh, it, it, it's all a bit sort of schmaltzy and, and, and over the top happy and things of that nature. But what it was, this was the final film that he did with David O. Selznick. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah. He had previously, you know, in the 40s, they'd started with Rebecca and Spellbound and Notorious. And this was the last one he had to do essentially to get out of his contract with David O. Selznick. Because David O. Selznick was one of those producers that um, uh, almost like a sort of TV model that we'd have nowadays or Bruckheimer or, or the Broccoli's or whatever, where, you know, you know, for him, it was almost like the films were the producer's medium. You know, the producer yes. was the one that would have final say. Uh, obviously, Selznick was massively famous for the success with Gone with the Wind. And, yes. um, you know, people would know things where, where I said sort of Hitchcock was like a star director. Then Sel oh, Selznick was one of the... Um, uh, you know, star producers of the time. So it would be a David O'Selznick picture. Um, yeah. You know, he, he carried a lot of power. As I said, I would sort of equate it today to maybe a, a Jerry Bruckheimer or, or what the Broccoli's do with the Bond yeah. series or whatever. Well, I figured when watching it, it felt very much like Hitchcock was just doing this one to, to get it done and get it out of the way because it just it just didn't have any heart to it it just felt like somebody just doing it by the numbers you know it's like you know when they say oh they do one for the studio and then they do one for themselves mm -hmm. but this one was very much doing one for the studio yeah yeah well i mean i i agree i mean apparently um throughout their collaborations hitchcock and selznick clashed quite a bit because obviously hitchcock was quite a control freak and would want final yeah. cut and all of this sort of thing. Uh, Selznick, um, you, you know, very much had his influence through the entire process, right from these, you know, creatively, right from the script writing down to the final cut of the film and even got involved sometimes during production. Um, so uh, I think from, from the, the limited material there is at, out there about the making of this film, um, what I managed to gather was, um, you know, that, that, that there were high tensions on this. Um, also, it's not massively adapted um, from the uh, story upon which it was based. Um, again, I think it was a novel, novel by uh, Robert Smythe Hitchens, and Hitchcock wanted to do his, his usual extensive rewrite and he wanted to have Alma, right. his wife you know who was always present and available in doing that um but a lot of their notes and their changes were actually thrown out yeah. to keep it to yeah. the to more to the original story um the story essentially it was it was also originally it was supposed to have Greta Garbo attached to it um but she didn't quite late on she decided she wasn't going to do it um uh, and, and at one point, Laurence Olivier was also attached, but he got an opportunity to do um, Hamlet. So uh, right. he dropped out. So the, in terms of the film star, they did have a massive star. They had Gregory Peck uh, yes. as the leading man in this. And um, he, he plays uh, a, a, essentially a, a lawyer um, in this who is hired to protect uh, the, the title character's um, uh, well, let's call her Mrs. Mrs. Paradine. Paradine yes, um, yeah. 
who is who is kind of your classic femme fatale, very beautiful, very elegant. Um, she was the, very cold. Yeah, very cold, <laughs> dark haired, interestingly enough, whereas Gregory Peck's wife in it was played by Anne Todd, who was a blot, you know, a Hitchcock blonde. Um, yeah. And it's very much a, you know, he he defends this woman and falls in love with her through defending her. And it's it shows how this then affects outside of that his marriage essentially well, uh, this is this is the thing that i thought i uh, was one of the things i didn't like about this film was the fact that it didn't really affect the marriage um because um his wife sort of cottoned on very quickly yet instead of telling him to drop the case or she was going to leave him or having kind of some sort of natural reaction to it, she tells him to continue on to do it because, you know, to save this woman, to do it for her because then this won't be hanging over him and, you know, that this would be like the the great love that he had lost. And it just, it didn't ring true. It, it no, it felt, it felt forced. Um, Very forced. It, it, it felt, I'm, you know, I'm so annoyed. When I was thinking about this earlier, I had the perfect word for it. And it's, I've completely lost my vocabulary. <laughs> it's gone out. Of, this is why I should make notes because whereas years ago I could remember everything, I'm bloody rubbish nowadays. So <laughs> I can't think what the word I'm looking for is. But um, I mean, melodrama does sum it up to it to a degree, yes. but there was something else that I can't quite find at the moment. Hopefully, it'll come to me. Um, but but you, you know, where I mean, this this at the time was a contemporary story. I mean, it was set in 1946. They mentioned that in it. So yeah, one of the little Hitchcock touches that I like is the opening shot. Um, it says London the near past which i thought I, I quite liked that as a credit in fact i kind of want to use that on one of my films i like that also the um when the the credits are coming on screen there's there's a shot of i'm not quite sure if it's a sword or something or it's, it's supposed to be at the courthouse and then at the end credits you see it being removed that's right yes you do yeah what was it i think it's something to do with um showing court was in session or so because again we were talking yeah. about the time where if found guilty uh, sorry i haven't even explained to the listeners what what the basic plot is essentially mrs paradine is accused of poisoning and killing her older wealthy husband <laughs> yes. okay and that's what he's brought in to to, to uh, defend her for it is also actually uh, a very i think it may have been the first film in fact a very young uh louis jordan is in it you oh know, yeah future yeah. dracula and future <laughs> bond villain uh, that's louis it because as soon as he came on screen because it, it took a while to actually for him to actually to see him because his first appearance um, there's a shadow covering his face, so you can know you can't actually see who he is. Uh, but once once I saw him, I heard that voice. I went, uh, "It's it's him from Octopussy." Yeah, no, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I th I think in terms of Hitchcockian signatures in this, um, yeah, it definitely there's some very good use of camera angles, close ups, movement, um, you know, but things of that nature which weren't common of cinema yeah. around that time you know often things were kind of in the in the realm of master coverage coverage or you know quite wide letting the action play out like a sort of theater almost whereas in this 
the camera is definitely used to uh, move emotion and move the story along and things of that nature. So it had it had some Hitchcocky things in there, which oh fuck, which reminds me something I wanted to really quickly mention about Dial M for Murder, which I love. With, with, <laughs> yeah, with, let's go back to no, talking Dial M for Murder. It's much more interesting. With, with, with photography, Hitchcock obviously always tries to get round problems. He likes to use close ups and whatever. So they they did have a problem yeah. in that where he wanted a really close shot of a key and a really close shot of the finger dialing the, the the telephone number, essentially dialing the M. And obviously filming this in 3D and whatever, um, they couldn't, you know, get the camera that close uh, for this. So what he actually created was a massive model finger and telephone dial and a massive key. <laughs> so, I mean, again, he was using innovation to solve problems and using his imagination to make his story work. And, you know, you don't yes. notice this on screen, which you shouldn't with effects, you know, essentially. But, you know, he did that. But anyway, I'm off topic. So, yeah, back, back on back on parodying case. Um, yeah, well, I just want to say um, the, the one of the crimes this film commits is such a lazy performance from charles lalton mm. does he not he in every frame he looks bored well he's also incredibly ridiculously unlikable in this i yes. mean you know the first yeah. time we see it, he, he's essentially playing the judge in this and the first time we see him he's kind of literally letching at um at uh, gregory peck's wife in it played by Anne todd um and you, you know he is he is argumentative. I mean, he's horrible to his wife in it. You know, he treats them really badly. And again, I don't know whether this is Hitchcock's poke at the upper classes, but everybody in this is incredibly well to do. Uh, yes. You know, it really is Mayfair London, you, you know, of, of the era. And um, but the thing here, here's the thing. And this is why I thought it worked. You know, when I checked it out, I thought, yeah, I am going to go with this as movie hell. Um, yeah. is because, yes, there's, there's, there's some Alfred Hitchcock, you know, photography in it. And there's, there's, there's some bits and pieces, you know, Greg, Gregory Peck, although it's very melodramatic and whatever, there's nothing actually wrong with his performance. It's just what it, no. it's just a bit over the top, but here's the thing. We don't have the ticking bomb that Hitchcock's famous for in this. There's no, there's no tension. There's no thriller aspect. No. It's pure drama and it's schmaltzy drama at that. Yeah. Yeah. So and it's just, it just, it's just so dull. It was so boring. It was just, it dragged forever. I mean, it was what? Um, it's two hours. Minutes. Yeah. I mean, it's it's nearly two hours uh, long. And, and it's just, it just, it, it felt like two days. Yeah. But here's the other thing of interest, and I don't know whether this is why the film, because apparently, you know, this, this film didn't do well at all with the critics. It, it, was, a, it was a real uh, flop, yeah, critically. Yeah. Um, and I think it is because it was quite boring. But apparently Hitchcock, uh, because this, this, this cost as much to make as Gone with the Wind, apparently, <laughs> which is quite scary. Wow. But yeah. because Hitchcock had gone over on this, because he he, he filmed multi-camera for the first time uh, for the courtroom scenes. Um, and, you know, we're talking, because this was set in England, you know, we're talking wigs and gowns and, you know, all of that good stuff. <laughs> and apparently it was all, yes. you know, they recreated the old Bailey and it was all very accurate and all this sort of thing. But it, it went over schedule 
And when it came to, and again, uh, Selznick changed certain things that they had to reshoot. And when it came to, you know, the reshoots and, and, and the post-production work, obviously Hitchcock wanted his usual rate that was in his contract and all this. So apparently some of the pickup shots and the final editing of this was actually done by uh, David Selznick and not Alfred Hitchcock. So, again, I don't know whether that is any reason why it doesn't have the usual magic. Not to say that Selznick was a bad uh, producer by any stretch of the imagination. It's just that I think that the combination, the marriage, if you like, didn't didn't particularly work with this film. Um, they'd had the success with the previous three, which were very good. Um, but I think it's just at this point that Hitchcock just wanted out of his... Um... It certainly felt like it. Yes, yeah. it certainly felt yeah. like it. And um, and and this is the trouble. It's just an unremarkable drama, which is a bit over the top, and you know doesn't really. There, there, there's definitely no thriller aspect to it. Um, no. And uh, yeah, so that that's kind of why I've I've um, I've selected that as the. Well, as I said, it got recommended to me and uh, <laughs> as, as not a good one of Hitchcock. Yes. And having watched it and, and done a little bit of research on it, um, you, you, you know, I think that it's, it's, it wouldn't be my, uh, my top pick of his at all. <laughs> so, yes. No, uh, it's definitely sort of one to avoid, I think. It's just um, it's not a very good film. It's, it's very dull and it just, it's very, it just goes on for quite a bit. Yeah, I think it was nominated for a few things, though. Um, I'm sure it was. But... Based around acting more than anything. It was nominated yeah. on some of its performances. Not Charles Lawton, I, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> and I don't know whether it was Gregory Peck for this. I, I'm not sure. But, um, uh, yeah, it, 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 it's it's not one of the memorable um, Hitchcock movies out there. And it's because it doesn't follow his normal... I don't want to use the term formula because that would be doing Hitchcock an injustice, but it doesn't follow Hitchcock's normal, uh, I guess, genre or yeah. um, is, yeah. is, is the term. It's it's not it's not what he does best yes. and what no, he was famous for. No, no. So <laughs> uh, this leads on to my pick for movie hell, and I'm going to do a bit of a preamble before I tell you what it is. Everybody has a film that they don't like. and But to everybody else, it's a classic. And when you say you don't like that film, you don't get it, people look at you as if you're brain dead or an idiot. <laughs> how, how can you not like this film? It's the best film ever made. And we all have that one film that everybody holds up in high regard and you watch it and you go, I just don't get what they're going on about. And hence, this is my pick for movie hell. And my pick for movie hell is Psycho. <laughs> and I can hear everybody out there go, what the fuck? Well, actually, you cannot put Psycho in movie hell. Well, and I'm going to say to you tonight, yes, I fair can. Fair enough. I mean, here's the thing. When, when obviously, you know, we 
we, we always I always know this before the podcast hence so we can you know prep on on it so we know what each other's doing so that we don't pick the same films and we and can watch oh so other. that we can go and watch them yeah, as well because no, we found out at the first podcast that if you don't watch the films it's not easy to talk about no it. exactly um but uh yeah no we, we have kind of evolved haven't we since that first episode <laughs> but yes um but what 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 my reaction obviously was 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 twofold it was of absolute horror when you said this like like the reaction that you said you get from most people but also i was kind of pleased because i thought ah good this means this means that i can talk about psycho without having to pick it as movie heaven <laughs> because you know for me it, it's definitely in my sort of well definitely in the list of top 10 Hitchcock films and if I was to choose which I I hate because it's so hard but if I had mm. to name a top 10 films for myself um I'm sure it would be in there or very high in there so uh you know I obviously love it so I'm really intrigued um by this to sort of uh to sort of hear your side of the story and and I absolutely before before that you know will say that you know, everybody's entitled to their opinion. And I used to say to, to students, again, when I talked to them, I said, you know, there are, there are some things that are regarded classics that you might think is absolutely shit. And there's other things that may be considered toilet cinema that you love. And you know what? That's okay. I've told people, you know, not, you know, it, it's, it's your individual opinion at the end of the day. And you don't have to agree with everything that that i recommend and oh, oh and, well, let me let's do we get so, into it Love yeah you. <laughs> you know, no it's, it's good it's good so so i i, I want to hear this i want to hear this okay i think what it is is it it's it's a film where if you go into it not knowing anything about it I imagine the experience of it must have been great, must have been really powerful. You must have been on really on the edge of your seat because you just did not know what was going to happen. The problem is if you go into that film knowing exactly everything that happens, including the twist, it becomes a very boring film. <gasps> yes, it is a boring film. I sat through one hour and 50 minutes of it today and I was bored to tears. Oh, my God. Really? Okay. Yes. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Because it's a lot of people, uh, there's a lot of talk, but it's kind of talk trying to sort of bamboozle you. So, you know, Anthony Hopkins' character, Norman Bates, talks about his mother. If you know the twist, you know he's talking out of his ass, that he's talking about. You know, okay, I'm going to ruin it. Sorry. If you've not seen Psycho, <laughs> it's too late. His mother's dead. She's a corpse. It's in his head. Um, the thing is, and, and for me, that doesn't work either because the, you, you hear like them arguing. You know, the other people hear them arguing. Now, it, it, but you hear a woman's voice. You don't hear him pretending to be a woman. And of course, at the end, when uh, after the psychiatrist has explained everything to you, because, you know, you're too stupid to figure this all out. I mean, that ending is just so terrible. You've been spoken to as if you're stupid. Oh, well, he's mad, you know. You know, he's, you know, it's mother. His mother's taken over completely. Oh, no, it wasn't about the money. You'll find that's in the swamp. 
It's just like, I watched the fucking film. <laughs> I don't need it to be explained to me. I know. What the fuck? I know, and, but my point being is that you hear the mother's voiceover is, is false, but you've heard that voice before. It just, it, to me, it just doesn't work because he, you know, you never once hear him do like a mother's voice. You know, it's clearly a woman's voice when it's supposed to be him talking to himself. <sighs> you know, um, I mean, also the fact this is the film that's given birth to the idea of killing your main character halfway through the film. Another spoiler. <laughs> you know, I... Um, and also the fact that uh, Janet Lee's character, Marion Crane, I, I don't feel any pity for her. She's a... You know, she's in a situation where she's dating this guy, this Sam Loomis, and he's... You know, I've it, it, they make it look like they're having an affair or something, but it's just that he's from was it a poor background or something, or he's got debts and she's stuck in this really you know bad job, and this opportunity comes along, this forty grand in cash, uh, by a very um, exposition uh, depositing Texan <laughs> in a white hat, you know. And she she makes, takes a runner with it, and of course, uh, so you, you know she's been. I, I mean, I think that the you know once she's on the road and there's a whole bit when the police is following and she's trying to sell the car and everything, she drives off without her her luggage and stuff. Uh, I thought that was kind of interesting, but then you get to the hotel and I'm just waiting for the shower scene. Now I'm not going to say it's not a badly made film. This is technically a really good technically it's great film the editing in it is perfect the music is great it's just the story if you know what's happening it's like i i guess it was like um how how horror films play out so if you go into a horror film and you don't know what to expect those moments when nothing happens, it's just all build up and you, the tension. And then once something happens, it's a relief, you know, because then you get the shock. So if you know what's happening and you're waiting for the shower scene, the rest, the build up is just, it's just boring because you're just waiting for it. And the thing is that Hitchcock has done, um, I know he didn't have much money and he used his TV crew from Hitchcock Presents. So the shot wise, they're very sparse. They're very long takes. Um, they're always like kind of like two shots or, you know, they're, they're, there's a lot more space in them. And they're all really well done, but there's a slower pace until you get to the, the shower scene where it's really fast cutting. And it's, uh, it is, that is just like a masterclass in editing. But then you got to, then you, you're following Norman Bates. Now, as an audience member watching it for the first time, I imagine you'd be on his side. I think that that's what they're trying to do. It's like, oh shit, his mother's killed this woman and now he's got to cover it up and he might get caught. But it it just, it doesn't work for me because I know who he is, that he is the killer. So why should I feel sympathy for him? And so you're just kind of watching it go through its paces. And, you know, and as I said, this has given birth to other kinds of films where they kill off their main character. And the, the, the example that, I can think off the top of my head was death proof. Mm -hmm. You remember? So you had 
one bunch of annoying girls that get replaced by another bunch of annoying girls that you have to get up to, to know over again. And the only saving grace of that film was Kurt Russell. Yeah, I mean, I mean, definitely, yes. One of the big coups of it at the time was it, it broke the the narrative convention. You know, uh, yeah. again, Hitchcock always sort of trying different things. Uh, it it was also, of course, the birth of the slasher film um, to follow as well, uh, kind of with this. Um, I, I mean, I, I guess I, I don't know. May, maybe, maybe it's it's it's. Um, nostalgia that works as well because i've I've got to say from from my perspective and i mean it is one of my favorite films i you know i think it's i do think it's a masterpiece and uh, in fact when you know back when i taught i did actually do a whole term just on psycho right for the students so i put them all or some of who didn't know what what it was about uh through all of this um i suppose i need to in some respects thank my parents because how my exposure to Psycho um, was probably in the sort of early to mid 80s. And what happened, it was back to this whole VHS home video generation again. Um, my dad had hired uh, two of the sequels. They were, they were actually, it spawned three sequels, uh, a remake, and now a prequel TV, TV series, series, TV series which, yeah. which I'm really enjoying. But um, he, he, he got, I think, the second two sequels on, on VHS, one of which was actually directed by Anthony Perkins. And okay. um, what happened was, you, you know, bless him, in order to, for me to know what was going on. Um, yeah. I think this sort of coincided with Psycho being on television one evening in, in one of these sort of murder mystery suspense seasons that they used to do on ITV or whatever. And yeah. again, he let me, even though I was, I was fairly young, but, you know, he let me stay up and watch that. And of course, you know, my instant thing, like a lot of people um, make them stay. I thought the film was a lot older than it was because it was in black and white. You know, I didn't realize <laughs> that that was kind of the point. And, you know, that was one of the things he was yeah. doing. But you, you know, the, before I really knew anything about actual filmmaking, you know, itself and the techniques and all this sort of thing, um, you know, obviously the Bernard Herrmann's amazing score, um, you, you know, captured me definitely with this. Um, let's be honest, Janet Lee is not difficult on the eye at all, is she? Um <laughs> You, 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 you know, and, and I and know, but you, I, I was kind of, you're not convincing me. No, here, but I, I, Keith, come on, I, convince well, me. I was, why, you know, I, you, why should I, I, why should I not put this in movie? I, hell? Well, I, well, I mean, you've, you, you know, you've got your reasons and you're entitled to them, but I mean, I think it works on every level, meaning, um, you, you know, the performances, I think throughout it are solid for what they well let first of all let's 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 strip it right back. Let's go back to the script and the source material. Okay. It's based on a, a novel by Robert Block, yeah? And yeah. That, that Hitchcock happened to read and wanted to secure the rights to. Now he along with uh, Joseph Stefano, who was his script writer, you know, they 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 took a lot of liberties with this and they changed this. I mean, in, in the, you know, a lot of people say to me, oh, you know, the new TV show. Is is 
you know, it's a, what you could argue it's a prequel to the novel. And I say, well, no, if you look at the casting of, of, of you know, Norman Bates in this, you know, in, in the novel, he is a fat, middle-aged, balding man. Yeah, um, Norman Bates. And, and, you know, they obviously decided to go with a, a young, attractive, um, you, you know, guy in, in Anthony Perkins. So they, they took a lot of liberties with, with, with that aspect of the story. Um, but in terms of the build-up and, and the tension, I mean, I, I every time I watch it, and I watch this film a lot, and I've, you know, I've, I've watched it with various commentaries, and I've, you know, I, I had it on VHS and then on DVD and then Blu-ray and all this, and I've seen it whenever it gets released again at the cinema. I always go and see it because, I don't know, I, I find it absolutely riveting, riveting, and, I, and I'm, you know, and I'm trying not to be pretentious about it. But, um, you, you know, I think uh, the setup is amazing. Yes, I take your point. It, it takes a long time before anything actually happens. But, you know, just just the thing, you know, the, the, the use of the camera, the music, the, 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 the techniques, every, everything, it kind of just pulls you in, I find. And, and I find it's one of those films, I, I think I've mentioned this before, you can own it on on DVD or whatever, but if you happen to flick on the TV one day and it's on, you can't help but keep watching. Well, you know, I have I have this with Psycho, and I'm sorry you don't. To be fair, <laughs> um, I know. And this this is the thing. I this is a film that um, you know everybody talks so passionately about, and I, I keep coming back to it. I keep coming back to it, and I go, I'll give it another go. I'll give it another go. I'm sure I'm wrong. I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm maybe it was when I watched it last. Maybe maybe I need to be a bit older. I don't know. You know, something. Every time I watch it, I just don't like it. it and I, I sit through the whole thing and I just go, yeah, it's technically very good, but it's just not engaging me. See, if you'd watched the remake and said this, I'd kind of get where you were coming from. But uh, yeah, you know, I, I do find it hard with this one because. Uh, you, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of the whole sort of franchise of it, but you, you know, this this first film, this original film, is is uh, God. It's it, it's one of those things that's almost hard to. I mean, again, there's there's endless studies on this out there, um, but you know, all I can talk is is personally, and and as I said, for me. It's it's one of those things that I can just always watch and and enjoy and you you know it doesn't matter that I know what's going to happen it, it it just kind of you know it it pulls me in and 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 I love it and uh, you, you know I, I as I said I, I could not believe it when <laughs> as I said I was part of me was kind of happy because it gives me this opportunity to talk a bit about it but. Um, yeah, you know it's interesting. It's interesting. As I say, I've, I've, I when I, I, I've told a few people that I was going to do this, and they all thought I was crazy. And I thought maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't pick this <laughs> one. Maybe I should go with something else, because people are going to go, "What the fuck are you talking about? Why, why Psycho? It's, it's classic, man. It's great." But for me, it's not. And I think it's just, it's just because I was. It's one of those films that it's such part of the. Um, the zeitgeist mm -hmm. that everybody knows it. You, know, you may not have seen it, but you know. Yeah. It. You know. You you do the famous drink. <laughs> everybody knows it's psycho. Yeah. You know. And so I was exposed to it 
too much growing up. So when I finally saw it, I just knew it. Yeah, I knew, well, I knew it, and it just there was none of that tension. There was it, it, it just it didn't capture me. And so you have if you don't have that, there really isn't much else in there. It is a prototypical horror film where it's all about the build up to that scare. And there's there's nothing else in that in the story that captures me. You know, it's not the dialogue, it's not the characters. Um, even though I think everybody is perfectly cast and they've they've really done a great job. I can't fault the acting in it. It's just it just doesn't connect with me. I can't and it's it's just one of those films I just I don't get. Fair enough. I mean and I I, I wanna I love I would wanna get it. Because you know it's it it's psychic. Yeah, I mean, well, this <laughs> is what these podcasts are about. I mean, they're not we're not doing this as a as a history lesson in in film no. genre or anything like that. We're doing them as as a personal thing, and it, and it is about what we personally think. And absolutely, if it's if it's personally doesn't float your boat, then then fair enough. Uh, you know, part of me thinks you were maybe robbed by hype. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you knew too much about this before you saw it, and it's a shame. It like robbed you of that experience. But, experience, uh, exactly. I mean, uh, the thing about films like this is, um, as much as we try and keep them away from kids, childhood is probably the best time to experience them. Yeah, because that's when you're more open to being scared. And uh, if I had seen this film as a kid, I'd probably probably scared the shit out of me. You know, but as an as an adult, I think I was a teenager, actually, late teens when I watched it. I saw it on TV and it just, you know. I remember there was, um, I remember seeing it, uh, a film. It was like an anthology film or something. But there was a kid who was absolutely um, obsessed with this film. And then he actually finds himself transported into the film and he gets chased around by Norman Bates. Oh, wow. Okay. I can't rely for me. I was trying to think of what it's called. I, 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 I think it might be like a horror anthology film or something. I just, but I cannot remember what it's called. Okay. I do, I do remember that. And I remember that being the worst bit of that film as well. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, but then that's just me. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, I mean, it is, it's, you know, it is something we could, debate for um you, you know fucking hours because it, it really is one of those type of films but um uh you, you know because another thing that i find very interesting about it all and again i don't want to turn it into a big thing on this is is the fact that um you know gus van sant because of the you know success he'd had with goodwill hunting and whatever was was lucky enough to be able to sort of pick his favorite film of all time and, and remake it. Okay. And yes. Okay. They contemporized it and made it in color and, you know, put, put, you know, different actors in, of course, but it's put funny. Boobs in yeah. It. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because even though all of the edits, the shots, the music cues, everything is kind of shot for shot, exactly the same. It's so weird how it doesn't work. And you well, know, even he, partly the the partly it was the casting. The casting I, I, yeah, I, definitely. Something. Yeah, I had, uh, Vince Vaughn as um, Norman Bates. Yeah. I mean, nah. the I remember the 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 one shot they always kept bringing up, saying why he didn't work was there's a shot of Anthony Hopkins 
or he's eating an apple and you see he's had an apple sort of you can he has a little reaction when you I think it's when he's talking to the detective and you can see he's had an apple sort of gulp and they do the same shot and Vince Vaughn doesn't have a pronounced Adam's apple so you don't see anything so it's just literally a shot of his neck yeah <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, like... I mean it's and also the other thing that was kind of I thought felt weird and hokey about the remake was you had some some of the actors uh you know like Vigo Mortensen and and definitely um uh, uh oh god um, what was it Anne Hish uh, yeah Anne not not Anne Hish but um uh oh my god my my what is wrong with my memory today um uh I'm trying to... oh I haven't seen it so I don't no, know um Well, what character the, the, was it? the one who plays Vera Mills' character. Uh, in fact, I'm having the problem she's got in that film recently, Still Alice, where she, she starts losing her memory. Um, Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore. Sorry. Yeah, so v Viggo Mortensen and Julianne Moore kind of, this is where I should have notes, um, kind of kind of <laughs> very, very much make the characters their own. And, and even though they're saying right. the same dialogue and whatever, their choices, both, you know, in wardrobe and how they play the characters and whatever, are very different to John Gavin and Vera Miles, who are their, you know, counterparts. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. Um, definitely um, William H. Macy, uh, you know, does pretty much copies Martin Balsam's performance to a T. Um, the James Remar, who plays the cop uh, for that scene, you know, at the, at the window when she's pulled over again, you know, plays exactly the same. So you've got sort of, that feels disjointed as well. You've got, you know, some people who have kind of broken away from it and others that are trying to do it exactly the same. And yeah, I mean, it doesn't work on a lot of reasons, but I don't know. I don't know how I've got onto that really, but <laughs> yeah, but I mean, yeah, I was going to bring up the remake, yeah. uh, but uh, I wouldn't for a second say it was better than the original. No, no way. way. No, in, fr in no fact, way. it was one of those pointless remakes. It's like, what, what it was, was it was totally pointless. In fact, it was, it was weird. Um, I, you know, like I said, I did with with the students, the sort of sixteen to nineteen year olds. We did a a term on Hitchcock, and what we did is we started by watching Alfred Hitchcock's nineteen sixty film at the beginning of the course, and then we talked a load over sub subsequent weeks. And I ended with playing the Gus Van Sant remake for the last class, right? And I just right. wanted to find out from a fresh young audience of now that are used to three D and color and all this sort of shit, yeah which they thought worked better yeah and mm. all of them um i'm pleased to say i think there was maybe two exceptions in the class which were those kind of characters that would would say this just to wind me up or whatever <laughs> but um most of them agreed that hitchcock's worked better but it was interesting one of the reasons they couldn't deal with it and it and again i said that's more because of history because of where his career's gone is they mm -hmm. associate Vince Vaughn with comedies because of because yes. of his career beyond um, that film, yeah, uh, we, which is quite interesting because now it's just started on television. We've got season two of True Detective, and it's interesting to see him again going back to a sort of dark, serious role when he has been so associated with this sort of Owen Wilson partnerships and comedies and and things of that nature so it, it, it's quite it's quite interesting we'll see how that progresses and whether that works yeah but, um, but then i wouldn't say that vince vaughn uh 
sort of characters that he played earlier on were that dark. They're always sort of the loud mouth, confident one. I mean, if like in films like uh, Swingers and Made. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he, again, he was. Yeah, he was always yeah. associated with. Um, yeah, he was always the loud comic, comic always... timing, and all that stuff. Definitely. Well, not yeah, but I mean, he certainly wasn't. Uh, not, not, not to a point where he's. Bates, that's for sure. <laughs> no, no. Uh, and, and, and you know, I mean, I have to say, you know, the, the, the sequels, and one of them was sort of a prequel sequel, um, which starred. Uh, um, well, they all had Anthony Perkins in, but one of them had um, Henry Thomas uh, from E.T. playing the young Norman Bates. And, and you know, I, they were all quite, quite entertaining films in their own right. And of course, I'm quite enjoying we've, we've, we've got the TV show uh, now, which is sort of contemporized prequel that takes place sort of 10 years, I guess, before the events of Psycho. But obviously they, right. they've sort of relocated it and whatever. But they've kept some iconography, like they've kept the house and the hotel looking pretty much the same. And obviously casting-wise with with um, Freddie Highmore, you know, they've kind yeah. of tried to sort of style him a little bit on the on the sort of Perkins look. So, and again, yes. we know where this series is going to go. But I'm I'm quite enjoying. I mean, Vera Farmiga makes it definitely, and I'm as mother, right. and I'm kind of interested yeah. as to how that's going to you know pan out and 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 you know what direction that's going to go in but um but yeah i mean for for me you know, you know hitchcock has a load of great films um but you know you know <laughs> psycho is is you know definitely in his top five as far as i'm concerned and uh I, you know i i do i as i said i feel i feel a bit sad that you that you I don't know that you don't like it because we often agree on so many things. So this is kind of interesting. Um, I know. I mean, we're not going to like everything. No, we're not. Absolutely. No. And it's okay not no. to like stuff that's classic. Like, yeah. like I've got, I've yeah. got another good mate. I won't name him on this podcast, but he hates <laughs> Citizen Kane with a passion. Yeah, and again, yeah. Oh man, how can he a, not like Citizen Kane? Take a breath. But I mean, you know, <laughs> hey, you know, it, it's not. It's not for everyone, you know. I I I get it, um, but you but yeah. you also I think have to be mindful of its importance in the history of cinema and in the history of filmmaking. True. And and like you rightly said, you don't think this is a badly made movie. It's just yeah, it doesn't quite work for you. I get it. So. It doesn't doesn't work for me. Yeah, but uh, interesting, interesting. Um, Indeed. Um, I just want to ask this before we sort of wrap up. Um, what is your favourite Hitchcock cameo? Oh, cameo. Okay, yeah, because of course yeah. we forgot to in in the in the two middle films we chose, we we had the sort of thing with the uh, um, cello, didn't we? Him moving the cello, yeah. so he was yeah. on the getting on the train, train. And you yeah, both uh, yeah, both times the the two cameos with uh, strangers on the train and the um, parodying case was him with a cello. Uh, either getting on or getting off a train. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and of course yeah. in in Dial M for Murder, it was quite clever because he was in a photograph, uh, a reunion photograph. I, I think I think probably um, uh, one of the most imaginative ones is um, in in uh, actually in Rope where they have the sort of outline of his his face, you know, the the, the famous Hitchcock logo as a sort of neon sign outside the window. Um, although apparently he also appears in the opening shot that establishes the building as well. So I've read somewhere. Yeah. 
Um, so I'm not too sure. But of course, Lifeboat is quite a clever one because okay. because in Lifeboat, you'd think, OK, how the fuck can he make a cameo in Lifeboat? <laughs> but apparently they've got a newspaper and he's there's oh, an ad right. for a thing to try and lose weight. <laughs> so he's also taking the piss out of himself. Um, but but yeah, he's he's in an ad for that. So, um, uh, you, you know, I, th- those are the more subtle sort of not too in your face one yeah you know. the psycho one was not subtle him standing outside the office <laughs> with a stetson which, on white stetson which Gu- yeah. gus van sant did in the remake which i yeah. thought was a bit of a touch but yeah <laughs> i have to say i am i am not a fan of director's com- cameos right because <laughs> i and i'll tell you why because most of the directors i've worked with who wanted to do a director's cameo it's like well what's the point nobody knows <laughs> yes yeah unless and it's famous. like well hitchcock did it yeah and it's like yeah well but the thing is hitchcock was famous and it was something that he did in every yeah, film yeah. Yeah. so it became a running gag you're just doing it because you know because everybody else does it and that's why i i try as hard as possible never to have director cameos in my yeah. films i did i did like the spielberg one in in gremlins where he gets yes. on the, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. On the <laughs> little you know buggy thing <laughs> that's right but i mean there's so much stuff going on there and and also the thing with spielberg uh, you find that a lot of the times he gets he just gets dragged in for a little part because uh, i remember his cameo in the blues brothers that's right absolutely he's the clark at the end isn't yeah, with he? a line if i if memory with a serves. line yes yeah. that's right yeah uh but i'm not a big fan of it um so um try and think what my favorite hitchcock one is um I think probably the the lifeboat one is is because it's just, it's a nice little uh, gag that if you know that it's not so in your face. No, I mean it's not in you your face it, at all. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. you, you actually yeah. have to look for it. You know, it's yeah. it's not even yeah. like a close up of the newspaper or anything. It's kind of just there, um, which it. which is very very clever. I thought that uh, that they did that, <laughs> but um, but yeah, you know, I mean, I I, I feel like we have literally just talked about the tip of the iceberg with the, with this it is the it is the tip of the iceberg yeah. um i if if you want to know uh i i've read a very good book recently that went through all his filmography and that's a book called the art of Al- alfred hitchcock so if you can find that get it it's very well written and it covers all the films in his filmography yeah well, the 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 interviews he did with uh, Francois Truffaut as well are, are very very good because yes. that's where he talks about how you know he drew a lot of his influence from you know from those guys <laughs> basically you know um, <laughs> and, from, and from the European uh, cinema uh, of of the early early cinema days. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, there, there, there's there's yards of material and videos and all sorts of yes. things out there and there's and some very very good documentaries as great well. documentaries and yeah, again you know yeah. there are I, I still find that there are some films in there that i've not seen you know i hadn't seen the mm. the paradine case until you know preparing for this podcast <laughs> um okay some could argue I, I i didn't really gain anything by seeing it but, um, <laughs> no but, uh, you know. probably two hours you'll never get back well you know it, 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 <laughs> that's what i felt it's all part of it but um 
there there are still yeah. quite a lot of his his British films and his in his silent films um, mm. that that are becoming available now. That's the good thing. Things are starting to yes. get Blu-ray releases. Um, uh, you, you know, for some of the more rare stuff um, is coming out there. And you know, even back in those early films, you could definitely see you know influence and style which would um which would serve the the the, the films that were to come um yes so yeah yeah great great uh a great influence on on many of our you know favorite filmmakers of of today and and the past and uh well i you know i i have to say i've always i've always loved his work i like his sort of macabre sense of humor um and uh yeah i always find i always find something interesting in them uh very, definitely visual definitely a visual uh filmmaker so that was our picks for movie heaven movie hell uh, the controversial so, episode <laughs> yeah, well i don't know uh we'll see <laughs> but um Yes. Um, so, Keith, how can people find you? Right. Uh, if you go to YouTube and put in British Isles, that's E-Y-L-E-S, uh, you can find my films, uh, my short films on there. And um, there are ways to get in touch, etc. if you so desired. And uh, you can find me via my website at independentrunnings.com. Uh, also, I have a YouTube page, which is Independent Runnings. Uh, we also have a Facebook page, so uh, please, if you do listen to this podcast, do like the Facebook page, and you can just search uh, Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. Uh, also, we have a Twitter page, which is at Movie Heaven Hell. And uh, also, do check us out on YouTube. You can find that uh, independent runnings. Uh, so that just leaves me to say uh, thank you for listening to this podcast. And, uh, oh, if you do feel inclined, please do leave us a review on iTunes and uh, a star rating. I suggest five stars. <laughs> that nice. sounds good. Why not? Aim, aim, <laughs> aim for the top. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> bye bye for now. Bye.